All right, psychology nerds, welcome to season four of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of the psychology department at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, the chair of the psychology program here at UW Green Bay, and I have a super great guest today who's going to talk with us about sport and performance psychology. We're going to get to him in a moment, but first, I want to tell you to get involved in the psychology and stuff conversation. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for psychology and stuff. Facebook is Psychology and Stuff. Twitter is Psych and Stuff. There's great stuff there about the show, but also psychology more generally. Plus, we take requests. So if you want to hear about a particular topic, that's a good way to let us know. I also want to let you know we are available via Stitcher along with other great Phoenix Studios podcasts. So if you use the Stitcher app, you can find us there. Thank you, Stitcher. Finally, we have got two live episodes coming up. So on Saturday, September 29th at 3 o'clock, we are going to be at the Brown County Library talking superheroes with Brian Carr in a crossover, serious fun, psychology and stuff episode. It's part of the Brown County Library's Comic-Con, and it's going to be super fun. On Wednesday, October 17th at 6 p.m., we will be talking scary movies at the Widener Center. This is part of a Phoenix Studio podcast festival that night, so you'll get live episodes of Psychology and Stuff, All the Rage, Indented, Serious Fun, Bird in the Wings, and more. And that brings us to our guest for today. He is new to the podcast, uh, and that is because he is new to the psychology program here at UW-Green Bay. He's a sports psychologist who joins us from the University of North Texas, where he earned his PhD, Dr. Alan Chu. How are you, Alan? I'm doing great. Good. Thank you so, so much for being here, not just on the podcast, but being at UW-Green Bay. So we are really, really happy to have you here. So uh, today we're going to, I want to talk more about your research, but before we do, I actually want to broaden things out for our our listeners who may be naive to what sport and performance psychology is. So can you kind of describe that to people, tell people what what is sport and performance psychology? That's a really good question. Uh, A lot of people ask me that question as well when I tell them, I study and do sports psychology. Uh, Basically, it's about the mental game or mental side of sport. Uh, When we talk about sports psychology, there are usually two uh, spectrum from mental health to um, performance excellence. So for performance excellence, which is what I focus on Mm -hmm. a little bit more, uh, is that we work with athletes on relaxation, on how to focus, how to use some positive self-talk to help them to be focused and confident during competition. So that's one side of it, uh, performance psychology, um, the performance part of sport. But we also handle uh, some mental health issues uh, with athletes. Sometimes um, they lose a game or two, you know, especially a collegiate athlete. They have a lot of stress from school as well, from maybe from sometimes from family, from coaches. So they, if they are a little bit depressed or they are anxious, they have any type of mental health issues, we also see them as well. I'm not specialized in clinical issues. Uh, I can handle some um, mild mental health issues, but we, we, I, I, don't, I would refer them to clinical professionals uh, if their depression or anxiety is too severe. So that's basically what uh, we do for sport and performance psychology. Okay. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, and, uh, but it's not just sports. I mean, it ends up being uh, performers and things like that, musicians and things like that. I mean, I know you spe- specialize in sports, but, um, but in, in studying more about this, it sounds like there's a, a, an element of performance psychology is for people who are in theater or music and other areas. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, even now in APA, Division 47, uh, mm-hmm. originally it's only sport, exercise, and health psychology. Now they 
have a different uh, section for performance psychology, okay. which they work with musicians, um, uh, artists, or any type of performers. Uh, they are now even talking about working with surgeons, you know, who need to do wow. surgery because they're technically performers. They shouldn't fail. They can't really fail <laughs> when they do a surgery on um, on their patients. So that's something that um, we are talking about, you know, working with other performers right. using pretty much like traditional sports psychology techniques. So you just reminded me as you said that I've been, this is a weird segue, but, or not a segue, just a, a tangent. I have been listening to a podcast called Dr. Death, which is about, which is the true story of a surgeon who was, at this point, I don't know if intentionally or unintentionally like maiming people during uh, spinal surgery and things like that. It is super, super upsetting and right, yeah. but it's fascinating but you got me thinking about it as we we're talking about surgeons mm -hmm. and like that that is really interesting um so i'm curious about oh another thing that i've learned in, in talking with you and we should mention we we did an episode last year with uh our other sports psychologists in the department dr jenna fagasa um, one of the things i think i've learned through talking to her and you about all of this is that i think in my head sports psychology was all about professional or even college athletes but that's not really true. We've got, you know, high school level athletes and others who, who are now, you know, going and getting the services of a sports psychologist. Um, has that been your experience as well? Or Yeah, that's right. I actually have um, opportunities to work with high school athletes when I was doing my doctorate at the University of North Texas. Yeah. So nowadays, um, high school coaches, um, parents, they are more aware of sports psychology and they are more aware um, that, you know, being better at their mental games will help mm -hmm. their uh, physical technique and help them perform at their best during um, their match as well. So that's something really, really has grown uh, this last couple of years. Um, and I would say that me personally, I organize a table tennis club. If you all don't know, it's table tennis, not, not ping pong, okay? <laughs> I was going to uh, ask you about that, actually. Right, yeah. Table <laughs> tennis is the actual legit sport. Um, ping pong is like what people do in the basement or at the bar <laughs> gotcha. um, if you're over 21. So I can still play ping pong in my basement. I just, if I leave the house, I have to call it table tennis. Is that right, yeah. <laughs> Te technically, if you, you are serious about the rules um, and you really stick to um, all the official rules mm. that you need to play, that you can call that table, table tennis. tennis. Gotcha. Right, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I organized a club uh, both at uh, University of North Texas and mm. before that, I did my master's at mm. the University of Missouri. So I organized table tennis clubs, and I will be talking to my teammates about sports psychology, uh, mm -hmm. about how they can be more prepared for their games. So nowadays, it's not only prof professional sport, collegiate sport, but mm -hmm. all different levels of sport. You can see a sports psychologist working with those teams. That's very cool. And so I'm curious about your background. How did you, how did you become a sport performance psychologist? How did you uh, kind of find this path? So it, I need to trace back quite a while ago when I um, actually before, even before my undergrad, you know, I was always interested in the psych psychological side of sport. Um, as a table tennis player, I realized the mental game was really important because some games, I know I did well because I was just confident. But for some games, I was thinking about, oh, I shouldn't lose, I couldn't lose, mm -hmm. I don't want to upset my teammate. I, didn't want to upset my parents, and I, you know, of course, didn't do well. So I was really aware of it, um, but I didn't know 
there was a uh, occupation, uh, an occupation in sports psychology. So I just picked undergrad, uh, doing my psychology major um, at city at the City University of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. which is uh, where I'm from uh, in Hong Kong. And then I had a chance to do a study abroad program. So I actually went to the San Diego State University um, my junior year to do one semester study abroad. And I saw that, oh, there's a sport and exercise psychology um, course there. So I was like, okay, let me take it and see what's going on, what's sport and exercise psychology. So I took the course and I learned more about different theories, learned about there's actually a a lot of um, different occupations and careers I can do with sport and exercise psychology. So after I uh, did did the study abroad program, I went home, I tried to do a little bit research um, about graduate uh, programs in different countries. Of course, I saw um, try to see back home whether I can do it, but there was not a, not a not a change. even nowadays. There's not a official program in sport and exercise uh, or performance psychology back home in Hong Kong or um, most country in Asia. They don't offer it. So I end up deciding to apply um, to the state um, to several different schools, and I got accepted in different schools. Um, and I picked the University of Missouri to start my master's program and. From there, I just developed my uh, experience and I want to do it more and more. And eventually I got my doctorate and here I am right. in Green Bay doing sports psych. Yes, and we are glad you were here. What, so um, you mentioned table tennis. You play other sports as well, correct? Yes, I do. Yeah, I did five sports in high school, okay. uh, specialized in table tennis. Um, I also did badminton. I ran track. I did soccer and basketball as well. That's right. We were talking about soccer the other day. So my my favorite sport. So. Mm-hmm. Um, very nice. What I have to ask: What what events and track did you do? I did long distance. Did um, it's a little bit different than in the states. You know, we don't use mile. You know, uh, we right. use like <laughs> meter. So we uh, what I did was fifteen hundred meter and okay. uh, uh, thirty hundred meters, gotcha. and then. Um, I did 5K as well. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So let's uh, shift to talk a little bit about um, uh, about your research and because and, and more specifically what you what you study, what you have studied, and what you plan on studying. So um, so give me a sense of what uh, what you do. So my biggest interest uh, is in motivation. So I've been studying why uh, people are motivated uh, to play sports. Uh, but also in uh, how they are motivated to exercise or sometimes the health habits as well. So I've been studying uh, different populations about uh, why they are motivated and then specifically looking at how coaches, parents, and uh, peers influence their motivation to play sports. So walk me through a a study you've done or walk the audience through a study you've done. Well, let me talk about my uh, dissertation then since that was the biggest project. And uh, I told my students, you know, they all laughed when I I said I had my PhD, you know, Mm -hmm. permanent head damage. After (laughs) I I did my 300-page dissertation um, with that study. So basically um, for that study, I was interested in looking at um, how coaches, parents, and teammates they influence high school athletes' motivation to play sports mm-hmm. and how their motivation influence the decision to continue playing or the intention to possibly drop out. Because as 
we know nowadays a lot of athletes play sports, but then they also drop out during the adolescent period um, mm. in high school. So I um, did a survey um, asking high school athletes how the coaches, parents, uh, teammates influence them positively and negatively. Um, and then after I uh, collect the survey data, I also did an interview uh, with 38 uh, student athletes in high schools to see uh, how and why uh, those social, we call it social agents, so coaches, mm-hmm. parents, teammates, how they influence uh, the decision to play sports and their motivation similarly or differently. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually find some pretty interesting things, especially some gender differences in that. Um, most of the male athletes, uh, the boys that recruited for interview, they plays football um, in Texas. Football Texas, is, is right. huge, yeah. yeah. But you know, considering that they are the ones that who uh, are a little bit burned out and more likely to drop out, they mentioned that they actually really see the coaches as positive, but mm-hmm. then they re- they receive more like negative influence from their parents. They feel mm-hmm. a lot of pressure from their parents. Interesting. Uh, and a few of them have parents who play high school sport, high school football and collegiate football as mm-hmm. well. So that's where the pressure came from. And then also they mentioned that some of the peers that they have, mm-hmm. uh, their teammates on the team, were not that nice to them. Uh, so that really, really influenced their motivation um, right. to play. Well, uh, on the other hand, for, for girls, for female athletes in high school, they actually see their coaches as, as a little bit more negative. Hmm. Um, they like their peers. They said their teammates were great. Um, they um, work together or they suffer together sometimes uh, right. when they were punished by coaches, but they see their coaches as more negative. Mm-hmm. Um, even though sometimes when male athlete and female athlete, they mention similar behaviors, mm-hmm. boys, see that as more positive and girls see that as more negative. So that really interests me, intrigued me to really try to dig in more and understanding why, you know, those differences occur. Well, you know, so as a parent of two kids who are kind of at the age where they're starting to pick their sports and activities, you know, one of my kids is six and the other is eight. And they're um, they're at that point where they're like kind of narrowing down their interests uh, sports wise. And I've been really curious lately and interested in what what they like and why they want to play and how and, and some of the different elements that that come into that. And certainly some of it's just that it's fun, but the uh, to them. But I, I guess the question then is, well, what makes it fun? You know, what what is the the thing that that jumps out about why you know? So my youngest really likes soccer right now. It's like, what is it about this that you really like? And for him, it seems like some of it's just that he's had some early success, you know, in that. And so then it becomes a question of, well, how do you, how do you keep that going? You know, what if what happens if he doesn't have success? What happens if he if he starts to struggle a little bit compared to his peers? How does he interpret that and take that in and uh, things like that? And how does that play into his motivation to continue? Um, have you looked at uh, like work with with um, kids that age or young kids or is there research out there on how kids choose the, the activities that they choose and things like that yeah there's a lot of research out there right now looking at uh younger children you know why they like to like school or why they like sport or different mm-hmm. type of hobbies mm-hmm. i personally don't do haven't done research with mm-hmm. younger children yet 
Um, but you know, let me talk a little bit about the theory that I use, and that can yeah. probably answer your question: how um, they can be motivated or interested in doing some uh, sports uh, over the other. So the theory that I used uh, is called self-determination theory. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what it talks about when a person need to be intrinsically motivated, mm-hmm. uh, three basic psychological needs mm-hmm. need to be satisfied. And they mentioned it, uh, DC and Ryan are the theorists who proposed this theory in 1985. They did a lot of studies and every study showed that these three needs are necessary for Mm -hmm. all human beings. So these three needs are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Mm -hmm. So autonomy means you are feeling that you have control and you have volition in doing what you want to do. Uh, competence will be similar to what you just said, you know, success. early success. Yep. Um, they feel that they are good at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, one critical thing they emphasize is that competence is not just objective, it's subjective as well. For example, you as a parent, uh, even though maybe your children may not be totally successful or not the greatest player on the mm-hmm. team, but when you give positive comments, positive reinforcement, and try to make the comparison with themselves rather with other people. Right. Hey, Rich, you did much better today than last week or last month. Uh, way to go. You were really good at kicking that soccer ball, you know, kicking to the right. goal. So those type of comments will really right. help with motivation. So that's perceived competence rather than just actual competence. Right. And then the third need is relatedness. Mm-hmm. It means a sense of belonging and connection. Um, so as a coach, as a parent um, or teammate, if you feel you, are, you belong to a team, you feel you are more connected to people around you, you are more motivated to do that thing as well. So uh, for example, in soccer, if your kids are really connected to you, connected to the coach and their teammates, they will be more motivated, have more fun, and enjoy doing it over and over. That is really interesting, and you're right. I can see how that absolutely plays into what I've been noticing and thinking about with with the kids. Um, and so I I wonder sometimes too. I remember um, there was a day. It's it's it was a year ago or so where where I said something to my son about practicing, and his response was, "I don't need to practice. I'm already the best." And it got me thinking about the ways in which sometimes competence can be because we've heard similar findings around kids. If if kids think they're smart. For example, they don't work as hard in school because they think they don't need to to learn things, um, and I and I wonder if that play how that plays itself out in sports too. This notion that I don't need to practice because I'm already doing great. So maybe that's maybe there's a downside to perceived competence or thinking you know that you're you're too good at something or good enough at something. Um, so if you were to uh, describe kind of what you think is, as we finish up, we're going to move into five questions in a second, but if you were to describe what you think is maybe the most important thing for people to know about sports psych or performance psych, what would that be? That's a great question because there are <laughs> many important things to know. Right. Um, I would say that one of the most important things I always emphasize is that sports psychology is based on science. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that sports psychology are like some of the um, tricks, tips, you know, just mess up people's mind, you know, not based on science, but it's very scientifically based. Um, sometimes we educate coaches and athletes about mm-hmm. that as well. Because when we talk about sports psychology, mental skills, they are based on traditional 
psychology theories. And then also there are many studies have been done showing that if you use uh, positive self-talk, you use um, mindful breathing, kind of like deep breathing during uh, a tournament, during a match, or any other type of mental skills, uh, you are actually uh, getting better at performing, not just mentally, but because physically or physiologically, they change uh, your body as well. So I just want to emphasize that sports psychology is based on science. Right. And I think that's really important because, you know, for uh, for a long time, it seemed like there weren't actually most sports psychologists out there. I'm putting that in quotes for people at home. Um, most sports psychologists out there were actually not necessarily trained in sports psychology so much as they were trained in counseling psychology, and they just really liked sports a lot, right? They hadn't gone through the kind of training that you or Dr. Fagasa have gone through. Um, and so it, they, they, it wasn't as um, specialized a career as it is now, where the research now um, and, and over the last 10, 20 years has really been different than it was prior to that. And I think it's important for people to know that, that there's a difference between say, a counseling psychologist who is interested in sports or likes sports and an actual sports psychologist. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. So, Alan, with new guests, we play a game called Five Questions, where I draw five questions from a hat that you answer. So, um, I will give you the warning that for whatever reason, these are, I think I must have been really hungry when I wrote these questions because most of them end up being about food. So I like food, uh, so that's perfect. <laughs> that's good. That's good. So um, the first question is, what was your favorite book as a child? Harry Potter. Was it really? Mm -hmm. Very good. I'm not going to acknowledge that that came out when I was an adult, but mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so I'm actually reading it right now with my uh, with my son. So he's we're on book three right now, and he is flat out addicted. So, mm -hmm. do you have a favorite in the series? I would say the fourth one. The, you know what? That was my favorite too. I really, really like the fourth one. That's my favorite of the movies as well. All right. Question two. Uh, do you have a favorite line from a movie? Let me think. I would say I don't really watch movie too much, um, but remember this because my friends when I was young would joke around with this line: "Is mm. you jump, I jump." There you go. What is it from? Do you know? Uh, Titanic. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah I should have known that. Shouldn't I? I, I, I yeah. yeah, I haven't seen Titanic in a long time. Mm. Very yeah. good. This also happened because you know back home um, we have a lot of tall buildings and mm -hmm. you know schools are usually we we have classes on fifth sixth oh. floor and then they would be joking around oh, you jump i jump and then yeah, it's just Very kind of nice. like play around with that yeah what is your biggest pet peeve i think i know one of them really picky eaters oh yeah because i like all different kind of cuisine and food but if i go to a place that people don't like i would be kind of you know sad that you know they don't like the food and you know um they don't enjoy the experience I assumed it was going to be people who called table tennis ping pong. Oh, but... that's, oh that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's one of those for but sure. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. We've got a question about food, as promised. If you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Which is tough because you just told me you like a lot of different cuisine. So, that's right. Yeah. Um, I would say seafood. I love right. all kinds of seafood. Yeah. So if I can have seafood every day, that would be perfect. Nice. Do you have a particular favorite? Uh, I like sashimi okay. a lot and um, oyster. Sometimes people think it's gross. I eat a lot of raw type of fish and seafood, but but they're delicious. Right. You know, I've never been. I lived in Mississippi for a long time, and so I would get plenty of 
oysters and um i was not as I, I was not a fan of oysters but i am a fan of crawfish like just absolutely love crawfish um last question what is the first thing you would buy if you won the lottery i think i would actually use that money to build a table tennis community there we go yep i would buy a facility and 20 table tennis tables there maybe in green bay and everyone yeah. Free to come and play nice. and have fun. Very cool. Yeah, I've I know that there are. Um, that's a popular thing elsewhere in other communities. These like kind of bars that are also table tennis communities. There's a great story about um, uh, Jimmy Fallon tells a really great story about going and playing Prince at a table tennis place. It's one of my favorite stories. Super super funny. You should uh, Google it if you're. If, and then that's when you'll find out that I'm remembering it wrong and it's not actually Jimmy Fallon or Prince. But anyways, go Google it. It's really good stuff. So, Well, thank you so much. Now, when we come back, Alan is going to tell us about something very cool in a new segment we like to call What's Good. Chuck, can I tell you something? What? I don't really like video games. I hate video games, do, actually. Do you I do. You want to know something else I don't like? What? I don't really like comic books that much. As a whole? Well, you know, I'm starting to like those things a little more. But you know who's making me like those things a lot more than I used to? Who could that be? (laughs) Brian Carr. Oh, my God. He makes me like everything more, (laughs) really. Brian Carr of the podcast Serious Fun out of Phoenix Studios. Brian covers topics from video game design, comic books, superheroes, and other sorts of pop culture phenomena. Brian is a UW-Green Bay communications and information science prof whose podcast, as he describes it, is a journey into the frivolous. He talks to people who interpret and create pop culture and says, whether it's comic books, video games, or reality TV, Serious Fun examines the media that shapes and reflect our lives. He also collects action figures. He does collect action figures, and he even had us on his show, so you know that means he's got good taste. Oh, totally. High standards. Otherwise, nobody would have been there. (laughs) Right. I mean, please. Yeah, or maybe it's good taste and low standards. Yeah. You can find Serious Fun and other great Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu slash podcasts. So, Alan, tell me what's good. So, one thing really good that um, happened just... This year, um, we have a new certification in sports psychology. So the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, they have a new certification called uh, Certified Mental Performance Consultant, CMPC. And they add one component to that certification requirement, which is that everyone has to take a course related to diversity so that they can be certified. This didn't happen in the past. There was a certification in the past with a different name. Um, But I think it's really critical that everyone should be trained to work with diverse athletes. For example, I I talk about motivation. You know, maybe a person who is African-American, a person who's a uh, Caucasian, who's Asian, they may be motivated very differently. And they may like different kind of therapy, they may like different kind of consulting experience. So if a consultant is trained uh, with cultural diversity, they are more likely to work successfully with Mm -hmm. different athletes and the athletes are um, gonna be able to perform better as well. So I think this is a really good component. I use culture as an example, but there are different type of diversity as well. So this is really great, really great. 
Yeah, that is really great. So, well, Alan, thank you so very much for being here today. I hope you will be a guest in a future episode at some point, but it was really great to talk to you about your work. Um, That's going to do it for today's episode. So before we go, though, I have got some people I need to thank. So in addition to our wonderful guest today, thank you very much, Alan. I want to thank thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks for being here. I want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, our podcast artist, Kimberly Bleese, and our fabulous brand new intern, Shayla Warren, who's going to do all the things to keep this show great. That is all. Until next time, keep being amazing.